In 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic caused severe disruptions to global supply chains, shaking the very foundations of the globalized economy. Deliveries were delayed, the cost of shipping went through the roof, factories suspended operations. This forced companies to rethink and realign their supply chains. What does this mean for countries and industries in Asia-Pacific? Who are likely to be the winners and who will suffer? Welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Piotr Zembrowski. This is the first episode in a five-episode series, Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. In this series of podcasts, we want to look at the economic, geopolitical, and environmental challenges facing the markets and investors today. We will zero in on ways in which investors can protect their portfolios, and perhaps at the same time, we will examine if this fast-changing, uncertain, and sometimes deeply worrying landscape presents new investment opportunities. The podcast series is supported by Equities First. The opinions of our guests are their own, and editorial control remains with Economist Impact. Also, it is important to note that any views and insights shared today do not constitute investment advice and should not be taken as such. Our topic today is the realignment of global supply chains and its effect on the economies and industries in Asia-Pacific. We have two guests, both with extensive experience in investment advice and wealth management in the region. Novi Depala is Chief Investment Officer and Executive Director at Trilake Partners in Singapore. The firm provides discretionary asset management and investment advice for high net worth clients. Noli has worked in the industry across four continents for over 30 years in all aspects of asset management, from sales, marketing, and product development to teaching, industry advocacy, and portfolio management. Noli is a past president of CFA Society Philippines. Noli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Piotr. Gareth Nicholson is Chief Investment Officer and Head of Discretionary Portfolio Management at Nomura's International Wealth Management Division, also in Singapore. Nomura is a global financial services firm headquartered in Tokyo with offices in over 30 countries. Gareth has been in the finance business for almost two decades. At Nomura, he is responsible for developing fixed income, equity, and multi-asset strategies. Gareth, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Is the world economy becoming bipolar? The China-US trade war, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the Russia sanctions all disrupted global supply chains and forced many global companies to rethink their operations. Companies that had earlier embraced offshoring of manufacturing and sourcing pivoted to bringing production home or onshoring. But as companies in many industries cannot manufacture or source everything in their own country, another option is being favored, offshoring to countries that are political allies and share the same values. Will this friend-shoring result in splitting the global economy in two camps? If so, which markets and industries are more likely to benefit and which ones might suffer? Let's start with a big picture question. What would a bipolar world economy look like? And are we really heading in that direction? Gareth, what do you think? I think that's the key question. We have been in an environment for some time now where you have the two world's largest economies at tension for certain, uh, you know, supply, certain commodities. And the commodity in question has been technology. Um, this has been a sore point for some time and has been growing a, a split. I think the post-COVID and particularly the Russian-Ukraine crisis has really put a divide in this. And now we're in environments where we have focus on security or resilience depending on how uh, positive or negative you are. If you think about security, there really is, everyone is looking for energy security, food security, 
potentially defense security or, or friendshoring, if you would, who you should be uh, partnering with. You have cyber security. You've also got supply chain and the tech security uh, around that space. So there is a lot of factors that are starting to grow and this divide, this uh, bipolarization is growing. Nolly, do you agree with Gareth? And what industries and regions would you expect to be most affected by these trends of onshoring and friendshoring? Certainly, I agree with Gareth. I mean, we've seen these inexorable trends as the the emergence of China has become more and more evident. The security issues and the other issues of security that, that Gareth enumerated, they're certainly all too real as asset managers. We will accept that the capital will be misallocated on the aggregate compared to how it was before. So we just follow the, the capital misallocated as it may be. And that's where the opportunities still lie for investors. Asia, I think, is a net winner, obviously, um, with a lot of our countries having very good relationships with both sides, uh, with China and the U.S. and Europe as well. Think about it as a third region. So I think net-net, I think this deglobalization, maybe it's a net positive for Asian countries in the medium term. Gareth, do you have any more insights as to which markets and perhaps which industries in Asia Pacific would stand to benefit from realignment of supply chains? Well, I think you're, uh, you know, Nolly has made a really good point that Asia is likely to benefit. Asia is likely to remain the engine of growth for this century. And I'm biased, I admit, I moved from South Africa to the UK thinking the UK would be a good engine of growth and then 10 years ago moved to, to Asia. I do believe this will remain the, the engine of growth, Asia. But there's a few things that it will need. And these, I think, the needs will also create some opportunities. Energy, we do need energy. We've seen the correlation between energy, about getting productivity in economies, about getting uh, small businesses, people moving. We have a big population. We need to give them, empower them with energy. And I think the financing needs, innovation, even cleaning up old energy, there's a lot of opportunities to be had in Asia with regards to energy, energy infrastructure, efficiencies. I think Japan is a very interesting space has been arguably sleeping for a long time for, a, you know, the giant sleeping. But this is maybe once in a generation or definitely once in a numerous decade opportunity for them to get out of the deflation hole, for this to awaken a big economy that is sitting on a lot of cash that hasn't had to worry about inflation, that will start moving and people will start following. You know, there are very few investors that have large allocations to Japan. And I think just a small shift in that direction, given the stability the safe haven of Japan within the Asia region means that's another spot that's going to do well. Nolly, what uh, risks, especially around the supply chains, which is our topic today, what's on top of your mind when considering this today and within the next few months? As far as the, the deglobalization is concerned, it, it's certainly a concern uh, for for the coming generations. But in the near term, I'm more concerned about uh, how to build portfolios that can pivot one way or the other. Uh, right now, I think healthcare would be a common feature in any portfolio that I would create. The cost structure has nothing to do with whatever discount rate or whatever bond rate you're going to discount it at. It's all about R&D. It's not about price of oil. It's not about the price of gas. So that's one. And energy still has, I think, some room to run. So healthcare, energy, a little bit of consumer staples. But beyond that, the variance amongst our portfolios is quite big. And that's primarily because of our worries are rooted in individual investors' objectives, which are very, very different from each other. 
Gareth, in your daily business, you deal with a big range of clients and develop strategies for them. What are your clients asking for? The key thing is understanding that capital preservation is key. These clients have made phenomenal returns to get to where they are. They want to continue to earn solid returns. Now, the definition of solid may differ from 4 to 14 to 24%, depending on the client. But how we think of it is really, how do we create that stable income in, in an environment where growth is going up? We felt equity premium in November last year wasn't offering much. We felt the fixed income was also struggling. And, and we took the, uh, the call to go very heavy cash. Um, so we were in our investment committee and our DPM mandates near 30% cash, which was a tough call, but ended up working pretty well. So now cash was king. We do not think it's king anymore. In this environment with inflation near 8%, it's very difficult to uh, just keep money at the bank accounts. I mean, arguably fixed deposits and uh, fixed income has become more interesting. And I think that's key. The way we're thinking about it, and if you don't mind me using the sporting analogy, was for a number of years, a lot of market participants have been looking for that home run. Maybe they missed the cryptocurrency home run or they missed the commodity or you name it, home run. And maybe the mindset still thinks there are home runs out there. We're trying to shift it more towards the idea of filling the bases with solid income plays. So you want three, four, five income plays offering six, seven, eight percent. We think that's a much more prudent way of doing it in this environment. So income plays like short dated investment grade, maybe with an Asian tilt, we think that offers interesting value. We think REITs still offer an interesting inflation protection in certain spaces. We think, as we talked about, the Matics play that through funds or ETFs particularly around security, offers interesting income characteristics. I think this is the way that our clients are thinking, okay, you can produce me the income with the stability that I expect that I didn't see earlier on the year, then I'll be happy. This is an environment I think we'll be seeing for some time where you know volatility, consensus growth is pretty low. Uh, I don't think we're going to see in the next two years the, the kind of growth we saw from the S&P over the last two years. Uh, so for that reason, we do need to maybe think slightly outside the box. And our investors, particularly ultra high net worth, expect that. One of the, the key shifts that we're moving, I think, towards is much more use of alternatives in mandates. So the idea of 60-40 has got a huge amount of attention. I think the next part that's going to get attention is, is a shift to potentially a 30-30-30. You know, 30 equity, 30 bonds, 30 alternatives in a, in a different form where the alternative's main idea is to produce stable income that has a low correlation to the other two buckets. Nolly, do you agree about alternatives? Uh, do you use alternatives for your clients? Oh, absolutely. Now more than ever. Actually, we did get out of alternatives early on, back in January of 2020. But we also got out of things that were a little less liquid, and that includes a lot of hedge funds, a lot of private lending. But now, Gareth is absolutely correct. We are looking to re-add, to, to go back heavily into alternatives like hedge funds that are not correlated with capital markets. We still stay quite liquid. We're not into private equity at all. Uh, we're not into direct real estate. We do a lot of uh, real estate investing through liquid measures. And certainly, obviously, our, our commodities exposure has been quite sizable this year. So... Yeah, there, there is certainly a lot of room. People better make room for things beyond stocks and bonds. Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty, is a podcast series supported by Equities First. And now, a word from our sponsor. Liquidity is one of the proven strategies to manage risks in financial markets in turbulence and uncertainties. 
Equities First is your solution for redefined financing. For close to 20 years, we provide access to capital in 33 equity markets at favorable terms, while our partners retain 100% upside in their assets. For more information, please visit equitiesfirst.com. We've heard how desire for security is driving economic polarization and that Asia is well positioned to benefit from it. Gareth highlighted Japan and the energy sector and Noli stressed healthcare is his must-have in a portfolio. Both guests said they allocated up to a third of assets in a portfolio to alternatives. Noli, you've mentioned you divested from frontier markets when the pandemic hit. Now, uh, considering the effects of deglobalization, would you take a second look at frontier markets? Absolutely. We're taking a hard look at it. One would think that, say, a country like Vietnam, who has friendly relationships with China, and now arguably may be the U.S.'s closest ally in Southeast Asia, would be a great beneficiary to this. I mean, we know, as you mentioned, Piotr, that we're not going to get full vertical integration as far as supply chain, supply lines are concerned per region. There's always going to be room for, say, China. And indications are that the foreign direct investment into China is still very robust as far as, especially on the manufacture of finished goods. On the other hand, countries in the region have experienced a great uptick in foreign direct investment for industries and companies that are in the intermediate manufacturing side, which say produces outputs for the finished goods. So there is room for that. You mentioned Indonesia and the idea of refining nickel there instead of just exporting the ore out. So there is a certain impetus towards that. Gareth, what, what is your view on, on uh, Southeast Asia, on frontier markets, on the industries that might benefit? To be honest, I mean, I'm not sure if South Africa is now called a frontier market or not. Uh, and if I look at economies in Asia, I think of... Sri Lanka, Pakistan, I think of Nepal, Vietnam, maybe on the cusp of being a little bit more uh, developed. But all of them, one thing that really worries me at the moment is the external factor of how fast the US dollar is accelerated. You know, really, you're still, when you're buying commodities to make things and Asia still remains a big manufacturing hub. I think I read when I last checked, I think out of the 45 commodities, 42 of them are still denominated in dollars. You know, you can try hedge as much as you want. So the acceleration of dollar has become a real headache for many economies. And the pace of it is, uh, you know, getting to levels that you can almost expect some sort of hiccup, some sort of real crisis if it stays at these levels because of, uh, as I, I talked earlier on about, the world still functions largely in a dollar space. I think that combined with the fact that over the last few years, many of these economies have, you know, for lack of a better word, binged on debt. They've been able to get hold of credit at a huge amount, and now they're having to, to start paying that back. And with the, uh, the increase of rates, even though we're, we're talking you know, potentially 4% as the upside, we still think there's a lot of pressure on that, particularly for countries that have really gone overboard. So I think there are major headwinds for frontier markets across the world. I think if, if, if I may add as well, uh, aside from the concerns that uh, Gareth rightfully pointed out, the reason why we have sort of held back on going back into frontier markets this year is the fact that one of the core issues, of course, is uh, food security. We saw some hints of that in Sri Lanka already, and we've seen hints of that elsewhere in the African continent. But think about Singapore, even though that we hardly grow anything here, 
there's hardly any farmland in Singapore, and yet it is rated as the number one most, uh, as far as food security is concerned. Why? Because of supply lines. that They have well-developed supply lines for each and everything that they import. So those are all two real issues that can and will come about again. The more we get fractured as far as uh, global supply lines are concerned, as far as self-sufficiency is concerned, it's more about making sure that your supply lines are as secure as possible. And that means, you know, playing nice with everybody else. And to me, that's uh, in the long run. It's a good lesson to learn. It's very interesting what you said about Singapore being being secure because of very safe, secure supply lines, while uh, perhaps other markets in the region are not as well protected. Which markets do you think are in more precarious situation? Egypt has one or two months of food storage for the population. That's the last estimate that I looked at. Countries like Tunisia, that's less than one. So in Asia, we have a large agricultural base in Asia, and yet the Philippines is a net importer of food. So it sort of helps to know if you're an investor where these hot spots are. If you're investing in frontier markets, um, especially in Africa, that bears watching. Yes, we are talking about risks, political risks, yes. food risks. Uh, perhaps I'll get back to Gareth. What risks should be on top of investors' minds right now and how, how they should protect themselves? I think the key risks is we've talked about deglobalization. I think that's obviously one we need to worry about. Climate is something that's coming up pretty clear, the idea that this is a problem today and not in the future. I think cybersecurity is also another thing that's going to come into play, supply side. Um, particularly one that we're finding uh, very interesting is around high-tech so chip manufacturers, um, there's obviously a lot of focus on sanctions and moving those around. How are economies going to arguably shift that and, and take control of their you know, required chip demand? Because this is a real risk of slowing down an economy if that becomes a, a weaponized thing. So we do think that high-tech manufacturing equipment, high-tech manufacturing supply chain will continue to be supported because companies want to be more standalone. Perhaps just one more question. Will digitalization affect the globalization? To what extent might it help with the realignment of supply chains? If we're talking about fracturing the supply chains, digitalization is not going to make it faster, or make it slower. I just think it's going to make it easier for it to happen. It is uh, an inevitable part of making sure that, let's say, if you are in the U.S. sphere, that we know that there is going to be some new inefficiencies that are going to come out of it because you're going to have to duplicate a lot of processes and even a lot of physical plant and property and equipment that wasn't necessary during the age of globalization. And now you're going to have to duplicate that. And in order to squeeze some efficiencies out of this new inefficiency that we are creating out of the need for security, digitalization will have to take up the brunt of that. There's a lot of ultra high net worth individuals that run companies that if they had better insight, more timely insight, potentially things could be done even better. And maybe digitalization will help that advance. And that could be regionally better, could be globally better. But being able to actually start using this huge amount of information that we now have effectively, to me, that is a game changer and could potentially help offset some of the burden of deglobalization and make things quicker. 
going forward, it's really important to be nimble. Um, this, this market is not one where you're just going to sit and, and hope. You need to be active. I do feel that, as we said, there are so many risks that are moving around that uh, active investment is key. Cash is not king anymore with inflation as it is. You need to be a bit more active in making sure that you're earning the income that uh, you require to get to your target. You do need a partner with people that are going to understand they're part of this deglobalized world, be it China, be it Japan, be it you know a certain sector. You want to understand this because the world is becoming more complicated, be it by policy or by uh, uh, geopolitics or supply chains or different regional chains. But to me, it's all about finding where the capital is flowing, what industries will thrive, what industries will survive, what industries will be sunsetted. There is good news in spite of the fact that you know we are putting up more walls, perhaps burning a few bridges here and there around the world. As far as investing is concerned, it's still all about the basics. It's still all about figuring out, given what I, as an investor, want to do tomorrow with my money, what should my portfolio look like today? And there is always a good answer for that, regardless of whether the MSCI ACWI is down 25 or up 25. There is always a good answer for that. We will have to leave it here. I'm very glad that both of you were able to join us. Thank you, Gareth and Nolly, for sharing your views and insights. And thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. Stay tuned for future episodes in the series Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. The series is supported by Equities First and is part of Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any work from Economist Impact, email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Please make sure to subscribe so that you receive updates when new podcast episodes become available. From the editorial team at Economist Impact, thank you for listening.